You know, Jay, I'm kind of surprised there wasn't more cosmic fallout from that whole decimation thing after House of M. You mean when Scarlet Witch cut the mutant population down to almost nothing? There was a ton. There was the mess with the Celestials. There was the whole collective business. Oh, and it brought back... Oh, uh, Vulcan, right? No, no, him it just woke up, but it wholesale revived... What, Phoenix? Onslaught. What?! I'm Jay Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 333, that's three threes, of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, outs, and retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. Uh, so, a couple things. First thing, as of a third of the way through next episode, we will be one-third of the way to our millennial anniversary. Shouldn't we be talking about that next episode, then? Yeah, but I thought of it now. It was exciting. Fair enough. The other thing? Okay, so, listeners, Jay and I usually check in and, you know, see what we thought of the various issues before we record. And, uh, somehow owl legs came up. Uh, I I didn't realize that owls are, like, all leg and there's just fluffy feather stuff over their legs. And if you pull the fluffy feather stuff up, they have these incredibly long legs and they look like freaking AT-ST walkers from Star Wars. Yep. It's, it's troubling, but intriguing. Owls are great. They also make just a wide range of really, really horrible sounds. I definitely respect that in an entity. Right? Yeah. Well, I don't know if the sounds coming from these issues are, are quite owl horrible. In fact, I think they're, they're pretty good. So let's talk about some X-Men, but first let's talk a little bit about what happened previously on X-Men. Well, back in Uncanny X-Men number 314, Emma Frost, who was comatose at the time, took over Iceman's body, and when doing so, she used his powers in innovative ways that he had never even considered. That's been messing with Bobby Drake's head ever since he got his body back, and he and Emma have had a few confrontations over it, to nobody's particular satisfaction. Do you remember that one time she cruelly didn't pick up the phone, even though she didn't actually know it was him calling? Yes, it was very ominous. It was very ominous. That's not all that Iceman's been through, though, because as of X-Men Volume 2, number 50, he is seriously injured. In a fight with the Herald of Onslaught, a guy named Post with weird little chip-scale computer thingies all over his body— uh, poked a big hole in Iceman's chest, and since then, Bobby's been afraid to turn back into his human form, lest he also have a hole in his human chest, which tends to go worse. Also, due to editorial fiat and the Comics Code Authority, he's not allowed to come out. Uh, that as well, and we'll actually talk a fair bit about that in this episode, uh, at least how it's handled in the story. Meanwhile, Dark Beast, that's the Hank McCoy of Earth-295, the Age of Apocalypse, um is living on Earth-616, and after cosmetically altering himself to more closely resemble his standard counterpart, he's taken Earth-616 Beast's place, locking the original up, in fact, walling him in Edgar Allan Poe style, on the X-Men. Dark Beast has done this for a couple of reasons. One is that he's evil and enjoys doing evil things. 
The second is that he's hoping to make himself a little less out of place in Earth-616, lest he be found by the Mr. Sinister of Earth-616. That's because back in the Age of Apocalypse, Dark Beast worked for that world's Sinister and was not a big fan. He was actually terrified of Sinister. We'll, uh, we'll see how that plan goes this episode. And that brings us to Uncanny X-Men number 331, The Splinter of Our Discontent. That sounds more like a Ninja Turtle story title. It really does. Either way, this issue is written by Scott Lobdell, penciled by Brian Hitch, who you might recall from the X-Men vs. Bird series, inked by Paul Neary, colored by Steve Bucolato, lettered by Richard Starkings, and Comicraft. And I have to say, of all the issues we've covered so far, I think this provides the best justification for the podcast's decision to essentially merge coverage of X-Men and Uncanny X-Men. I mean, we have Iceman having gotten his chest blown open in X-Men number 50. We have the Crimson Dawn stuff as far as Psylocke's injury from Uncanny number 329 and 330. The Dark Beast stuff from X-Men Unlimited, we can throw that in too. And to a lesser extent, X-Force and Generation X show up from their books. They're the other two sort of school-ish books in the X-Line. I know we've talked about how that kind of bugs us, but honestly, it really makes the X-World feel connected and a little more lived in, for me, and this issue anyway. When it's, you have to read every book of every series to follow anything that's going on, I think it's obnoxious. When it's like this, I think it works fairly well. Yeah, I mean, I think the story does a good job of at least explaining through context what's going on, and of course, those delightful little editorial captions. So, most of this issue takes place at Frost Enterprises, where Iceman has turned Emma's office into a very creepy winter wonderland. He's there because while he has figured out some new ways to use his powers, for instance, he can freeze the flow of blood to people's brains, he is not comfortable using those powers to fix the gaping hole that the Herald of Onslaught left in his chest. Okay, before we get to the actually important stuff, so... Iceman had a major power upgrade and is freezing the flow of water in people's brains. When Magneto got one of his major power upgrades, he was able to control people's blood in their brains using the iron in that blood. Is this just a natural evolution of every mutant power? Iceman's makes a lot more sense than Magneto's. I mean, human bodies are mostly water. I don't know, still, I want to see, like, Glob Herman shove some paraffin wax in somebody's ear, and that does something to their brain. I mean, he probably wouldn't do that. He's he's a good boy. He's very good. There's this whole thing called ear candling that's kind of that. Oh, well, maybe Glob Herman is real, and has gotten incredibly powerful because, I don't know, he's a herald of Onslaught or something, and thus he can help you with your earwax. He's, he's a nice herald of Onslaught. He's a good boy. Anyway... Iceman is currently stuck in his ice form, because again, gaping hole in chest, he's scared to change back to his human form because he doesn't know how those injuries are going to translate. Happened to Colossus a couple times back in the day, makes sense. It did, but it's less of a certainty for Iceman. Like, for Colossus, it was very, very clear what was going to happen because his anatomy is duplicated in his, his organic steel form. Like, he's still got... An organic steel spinal cord, for instance. Iceman is just ice. Mm -hmm. And so he's come to confront Emma, the person who knows his powers better than him, both about this problem and in general, because he's been freaked out ever since things happened with her. Well, and to try to get her to help him, because he does not think this is something he can manage on, on his own. So he, he captures Emma 
I put captures and scare quotes because honestly, she pretty much lets him. And she takes the opportunity to put him through a gauntlet of visions of friends and acquaintances and enemies, his dad, Opal, and finally Beast. So let's talk a little bit about a couple of these, because initially I was thinking this would just be like what Mystique does when she's jerk flirting with Forge or anybody else, you know, turning into people that the target is romantically interested in. But this seems very targeted, not just to provoke Bobby, but to bring him to certain understandings. Yeah, it's attacking both his confidence and his integrity. His his dad accuses him of being not a real man. Opal says that, you know, she was just there to be part of Bobby's image. And again, this is the era during which there were writers who were arguing to have Iceman come out. Um, so I think that subtext has to be pretty deliberate. Well, and some of it is just so clear. Yeah, as Bobby's dad says. But you're not a real man, are you, Bobby? You're a mutant. You're... And then he's cut off, which, of course, makes the reader ask, what, what else was he going to say? And in this era, after saying you're not a real man with all the subtext that's already there, I mean, I think we can confidently say, like, this is absolutely deliberate. Yeah, no, this is... As with his previous confrontation with Emma... This is a coming out story with everything but the coming out. Yeah, and I gotta say, that makes me look at it kind of favorably. Like, given the constraints of the time, I think it's handled about as well as it could have been. Yeah, yeah. Bobby, though, is stronger than Emma seems to think he is, and maybe stronger than he thought he was himself. It's not going to work this time, Emma. I won't be bullied or seduced or distracted or anything. I've stopped lying to myself. I'm not going to listen to your lies, anyone's lies again. I have power, maybe more than I ever thought I did, and I'm through with not living up to that potential. Emma is not intimidated, though. She refuses to directly help Bobby. Stop analyzing everything to death. There are some things in life you can only learn by doing. Ask yourself, Drake, what if you don't try? Will you be able to live with yourself if you don't do it on your own? And yeah, he does. He changes back to his human form, and he's okay. Emma is in the end a really good teacher. She is very, very capable, at least by this point. We've we've seen her kind of learn this ability and, and overshoot it a few times. But here she's very, very good of understanding what Iceman needs to get where he's going. And in this case, it's to be forced to actually take initiative and do something himself. And this is definitely something, to continue the coming out metaphor, that was tackled masterfully in Cena Grace's run of the Iceman ongoing series, just in terms of focusing on Bobby as a character who, for whom it's been very easy to pass as, quote, normal on every axis and thus never really understand who he was or live up to his full potential. Did this make you think of the bit about his vapor form? You know, it's been a while since I read that series as much as I liked it. Could you remind me? Basically about how what it what it takes for him to get to that is to just kind of convince himself that he wants to not exist. 
Oh, man. Mutant power as metaphor for psychology. Like, obviously, mutants are a metaphor for all num- uh, for any number of oppressed minorities, but I think that specific powers that mutants have, that's how they work best, when they just tie in so perfectly to that character's individual psychology. Well, I think you, you talk about that being when the powers work best, and I think it's more than that. I think it's when a character's psychology and a character's sense of self evolves alongside their powers. Because in this, it's not, you know, Bobby got powers that are perfectly suited to his personality. It's that Bobby's personality is partially formed by having the powers he does and, you know, the ability to pass that he does and the role on the team that he does. Yeah, it's just back and forth and back and forth. Absolutely. Meanwhile, at stately Xavier Manor, Beast's lab, as it is wont to do, explodes. And X-Force is there to help. I do really enjoy this. Like, oh, of course, they're around because they live there. And so a couple members of the team who are suited to this type of operation help out. It just, it's not a big crossover event. It's not super significant. It just, you know, makes it feel like a cohesive universe. And Beast's personality is interesting here. And X-Force, to various extents, notices it. I mean, Boom Boom doesn't, but she's not the most perceptive kid. Beast is almost manic-seeming in in his, you know, Avengers-era bouncing blue Beast persona. Just super cheerful, lots of wordplay, a very sardonic sense of humor. This, of course, is Dark Beast pretending to be Beast, and I enjoy that he's mostly got it, but he's overcorrecting a little. He's trying just a little too hard, especially in a dangerous situation like this. Like, at one point, he even references uh, Jim Carrey as he's making a joke. Like, Dark Beast, of course, would be curious enough about the world, that's his deal, to know 90s pop culture. We've seen how many TVs he has. Exactly. But, you know, he also did his homework on Beast, and we know that Beast is a pop culture junkie, not in the same way that, like, Megan or Warlock are, but he's always aware of this stuff. So, it's honestly handled pretty well, and it's handled in a way where you could understand why the characters would notice things were a little off, but assume that it was just that Hank was, you know, underslept, or too focused on his legacy virus research, or whatever. Yeah, and luckily for Dark Beast... That kind of overperformance is a thing that Hank has been doing to compensate for how stressed he is about the legacy virus. Yeah, I really enjoy that. I really enjoy that while, you know, Hank is absolutely the good guy and Dark Hank is absolutely the bad guy, you know, in some ways, Hank kind of set up his entire life so that people wouldn't notice a transition like this. In Colorado... Meanwhile, Bishop and Gambit bond in the mountains. They are at Warren's Colorado hideout, apartment, compound, uh, nest. Nest. And Archangel gives Xavier a stern talk about the good old days and his casual use of psychic manipulation. So this is foreshadowing Onslaught, but it's also a really pleasant nod to the fact that Silver Age Xavier was an amoral shit. He would erase villains' minds or even, like, crowds' memories left and right to just make things go more smoothly for the X-Men. And, of course, we find out in X-Men Deadly Genesis, which I continue to shake my fist at at all times, that he erased everyone's knowledge of the first X-Men team that went to Krakoa and got killed, including, you know, Scott and Alex's brother. Yep. But this is cool. Like, not only is it good foreshadowing for Onslaught— But it's a nice scene with Warren. Like, we know that he's very stressed out, 
and feels very guilty about whether or not he's on the X-Men. Like, Psylocke has been severely injured and had some weird ninja potion uh, that kind of sort of fixed her and gave her a face tattoo. He wants to take care of her. He wants to stay on the team. And he's so messed up by this that he lashes out to his mentor figure, to Xavier, and that's how he does it, bringing up Xavier's worst moments. Which, again, in context is a little iffy, but is, I think, again, a really important reminder, especially right now, that Xavier is not the ethical paragon that he's been presented as more recently. Now, Archangel and Psylocke are going to be taking a break from the team. They're going to go off and do their own thing for a while. So who do we have left? So for a franchise that was so big in the mid-90s and has so many compelling characters, not that many people. We have Cyclops and Phoenix. We have, parenthetically, Dark Beast. We've got Iceman, Storm, Bishop, Gambit, Cannonball, and kind of sort of Wolverine. Like, I guess that's a lot of characters, but that's not a lot of characters to divide between two X-Men books. One of the things that I keep noticing in this era is we think of X-Men as a comic with really amazing female characters, and I think that tends to create sort of the artificial memory of a team that's much more gender-balanced than it often actually was. Well, I don't know. Like, in Claremont's run, it was typically pretty damn gender-balanced, you know, certainly for the entire Outback era and many others— And in the Blue and Gold era, not so bad either, but now we've lost Psylocke, we've lost Jubilee to Generation X, we've lost Rogue, Um, I'm probably forgetting somebody, but yeah, right now, we only have two women on the team, and I think that's the most gender imbalanced the team has been in a long time. Before we move on from Warren, can we talk about how Hitch draws him? So, Hitch tends to draw stubble onto characters, And in the case of Archangel, the colorist has decided to color it just like it's a full beard. But the result of that is that it looks like the bottom of Warren's face has like a Halo-style glow. I mean, to me, it looks like a chin strap and then a little mustache stubble. I mean, is he me back in high school? The thing is, if you you imagine it just colored the color of the rest of his skin, it just looks like a slight slight stubble or five o'clock shadow. It doesn't, it doesn't look the same degree of ridiculous. It's really the coloring that kills that look. I think it's hilarious and delightful. I'm, I'm not going to say good, but, but I'm glad it's that way. I don't know why I find the idea of Warren as Archangel being able to grow facial hair so weird, but it's, it, that, like, that more than anything else shocked me. Oh man, you know what I'm picturing now? So you know how he had his full Archangel outfit that Apocalypse put him into, and for a while we didn't even know if he like, could take the hood off? That, but with, like, a handlebar mustache? Oh, I was just thinking a big, bushy, like, broom-style mustache. But yes, definitely Walter Simonson's sleek science fiction archangel design, but with a big fucking mustache in the front. So basically doing the Dan McNinja. Yeah, yeah, like that. Now, going back to, to actually other team members who have weird history with mustaches, mm-hmm. um, Scott and Jean are tracking down the scene of the fight with Onslaught's Herald, which I love. They don't actually geographically locate it as anything but somewhere. Yeah, it just says somewhere. I, I don't know if Vladbo if just wasn't wasn't trying here. But uh, yeah, it's like a, a naturey place that looks absolutely nothing like the naturey place where they fought post. Yeah, there's there's some canyons and stuff. Um, and they find that there is no damage to the landscape, no sign that there was a fight there, which p- supports my pet theory that it was all in Xavier's head. 
Okay, so that, like, there was a corresponding physical location, but nobody was actually there. Right. Yeah, I like it. Let's go with it. It makes Onslaught make more sense as a story, and we have established that is one of our goals in the podcast right now. Sweet. So this is basically a standalone, but the next two issues we're looking at are one connected story. That brings us to X-Men 51, Deathbound Train. Which is written by Mark Wade, penciled by Pasquale Ferry, inked by John Dell, Mark Morales, and Vince Russell, and colored by Marie Javins, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft. So Mark Wade is going to be the official writer on Adjectiveless X-Men, but not for very long. Like, a lot of people remember his run in the same way that a lot of people remember Paul Smith's run as being longer than it actually was. Uh... I think it works pretty well, honestly. I think it's a very smooth transition from Lobdell's writing style, so it doesn't feel jarring going from one to another, and I think Wade is pretty damn solid. I mean, it's very much 90s house style writing-wise, which we know was editorially driven, but uh, I'm okay with that for now. Yeah, Wade is absolutely fine. He's not particularly distinctive at this point. Some of his later stuff, though, oh man, his Daredevil run? I mean, you were the one that turned me on to it. Yeah, his Daredevil run is one of my all-time favorite comics. Oh, it's so good. It's just so good. And honestly... And I say, I say his Daredevil run, but the artist is is so, so, so much. You know, it's Polo Rivera and then Chris Semney. Oh, yeah, so good. And honestly, all the Daredevil runs since then have also been good. Like, I never thought I would be a Daredevil reader, but after Wade's run, I've kept reading and it stayed good. Yes. Yes. Join me in the most dysfunctional corner of the Marvel Universe. <laughs> Is Matt Murdock? Yeah, you know what? You're totally right. Matt Murdock is absolutely more dysfunctional than the X-Men. Like, on his own. What you gotta remember is that he's one person. That's a lot of dysfunction in just one guy. Right? Like, I don't know if Daredevil has as much dysfunction in it as X-Men as a title does, but if you just look at, like, the ratios of number of protagonists or characters, I mean... Matt's pretty fucked up. There was was a point where um, a friend and I were talking about, and maybe someday still will... Uh, starting a Daredevil podcast that was, I, I don't remember what we were going to call it, but the domain name we bought was just mattno.com. Oh, yeah. Uh, as I recall, you also bought mattyes.com and it just redirected to mattno. Correct. I thought that was very funny. I still think it's funny. Matt Murdock makes so many bad choices. Mm-hmm. Well done at being poorly done, Matt's choices. Anyway, let's start with a scene, not the one that this issue opens with, but one that I just want to throw at the beginning so we can get to the meat later. Let's start in Annandale on Hudson in New York at the Gray family home. Hey, it's Jean's family. Yay, we saw them recently taking a vacation which was interrupted by the brood. As happens. So, Scott's there, of course, with Jean. It's a family visit. And he's playing games with Joey and Galen, Jean's nephew and niece, and Scott seems pretty good with kids. He's playing guess which hand has the quarter, he's playing guess the number, and Jean immediately sees what's going on. He is trying to find out if they might have mutant potential. He is on the clock during a family vacation. I mean, he is, he is also canonically just pretty good with kids. There is that, too. What he should be uh, checking for, honestly, is whether either of them can, like, breathe underwater— we do remember that their mom, Sarah Gray, was turned into a blue merlady back in Bizarre Adventures number 27. There's not really an ethical way to check for that. I, uh, I, I suppose that's true. Okay, uh, Scott, I take back my criticism. You're, you're probably handling this pretty well. Uh, Jean doesn't think so, though. She figures, all right, 
these kids should just get to be kids. Come on, just let them be normal preteens who look like they're much older than they're actually written in this scene. But I kind of object to this part. I mean, Jay, you remember the last major stuff that happened with Joey and Galen, right? And I'm not even talking about their mom turning into a dead robot. Um, You mean when they were kidnapped and had their minds wiped by, by Nanny and the Orphan Maker? Right. And so, like, Jean and Sarah's parents, you know, John and Elaine, who are here, adopted them. Not because, like, oh, these are our, our kid family people who know us, but more like because they really needed some adults who weren't a strange lady in a metal egg in a ship which sometimes extruded the grappling arms. I mean, their, their parents also respectively disappeared and were killed sometime before that. They've had a rough time, and I kind of get Jean's point here that they should maybe just get to, you know, do their own thing for a while. Right, right. But saying they're just normal kids, I mean, I wish they were. Well, you know what? It's better than what will happen to them in End of Greys. I mean, yeah, by definition. I think that's my least favorite Chris Claremont story. Anyway, Gene, uh, as part of being mad at Scott for him always being at work, accuses him of being born at 40, and he says he's 25. So... This does not scan relative to the fact that we know that Beast is 30, but I can no-prize it. Uh, okay, okay. Scott A. lives in the Marvel Universe. B. has spent a large amount of time in the future and in other weird time-traveling stuff. I think it is reasonable that he just totally loses track of his own age periodically. Yeah, I can see that. He certainly uh, doesn't seem like the kind of guy to get excited by his own birthday parties. Yeah, I, I would imagine not. Huh. Well, they're interrupted by the news before they can try to figure out just how old Franklin Richards actually is. That's right. It's Graydon Creed of the Friends of Humanity, and he has a very important announcement to make. Ladies and gentlemen, I know your fear. The fear of a tomorrow in which humans like you and I become second-class citizens— the fear of a world ruled by a self-styled master race which has only its own interests at heart. Together, we will conquer that fear. My name is Graydon Creed, and with your help, I will be the next president of these United States. Scott wonders at this point if someone can successfully run a campaign on hatred, which I gotta say reads real differently in 2021 than it did in 90-whatever. I mean, I'll be honest, reading this is, is genuinely kind of hard. Like, the last, the previous four years, I guess I should say, are still really raw. Like, this is kind of too real. It honestly seems like it's referring to exactly what happened recently. Yeah, I mean, we elected an actual supervillain that happened. Pretty much, yeah. But Graydon Creed, I mean, he's going to be a major character. His presidential campaign is going to be a major plotline for a while going forward. I think it's a good X-Men story. I think this is absolutely stuff that X-Men should address. It just makes me twitch a little. Yeah, the, the, the timing is what it is. So before we dive into our fight train that forms the centerpiece of this and the next issue... Is a fight train like a braid train? Uh, yes, exactly. Just punch people in the back, and then somebody else punches you in the back, and hopefully it's pretty gentle, because otherwise... Ow, there's important stuff there, like your kidneys and your spine. 
Anyway, let's check in with Rogue, who I'm pretty sure has been part of a braid train at some point. So, this is actually from number 52, but yeah, let's throw it here before the train stuff. She had left the X-Men after she had a big dramatic fight with Gambit in a theater, which is a good place for a dramatic fight. She absorbed a bunch of his memories and personality after they kissed at the end of the world, and knows that he has a dark secret that he isn't quite willing to talk about, or at least that she won't listen to him about. It's, it's a long story. The point is, she's not in the X-Men, and now she's renting an apartment. Right, she is living in South Carolina. Her landlord seems really nice, and she's got an adorable kid who really loves to play Got Your Nose, which Rogue does not react well to. And I gotta say, if you take those two panels in isolation and show them to someone who doesn't know anything about X-Men, they're hilarious. Oh yeah, this kid's like reaching out saying, Got Your Nose, and there's this close-up on a horrified Rogue just yelling, No! She she really likes her nose, guys. She wants to keep it. It's, it's you know, it's her. She uses it to smell stuff. Exactly. I mean, she can't touch anybody, so her other senses are very important. Rogue's landlord, as it turns out, is kind of a jerk and specifically is a pretty hardcore anti-mutant bigot. Yeah, like a radio bit comes on about Graydon Creed or possibly about one of the mutant fights going on in the issue, I forget which. And uh, the landlady accuses Rogue of liking mutants because Rogue is so spaced out from how much she wants to keep her nose. And this always reminds me of, I don't know, something very important that I learned from a friend, I think back in high school, which is if you're on a date and your date is super nice to you, but is mean to the waiter, then your date is a mean person. That just because somebody's being cool to you, if they're shitty to other people, that is what's important. That is what's relevant. I think this scene's a fine illustration of exactly that premise. That brings us to, as you mentioned, the fight train. Mm, fight train. Train that fights. The team is sent out on an urgent mission from Professor X. Professor Xavier has just brought Cerebro online for the first time since it was blown up by Banshee in the Phalanx Covenant, and it has registered a gigantic spike of mutant stuff. It's a it's gigantic, ambiguous spike. It's not one that clearly corresponds to one mutant or even multiple mutants, and it's on a path commuter train in New Jersey headed into Manhattan. Fortunately or unfortunately, depends on who you ask, the only X-Men around are Bishop, Gambit, and Dark Beast. So, off they go to Jersey. I'd like to suggest that at this point we just refer to Dark Beast as Beast, and take the dark as red and just remind everyone periodically what's going on with them. I mean, I'm confused enough. I'm worried listeners will be confused even more. But yeah, we can do that. I think that seems reasonable. Look, if they're just listening to random clips, then they made that bed for themselves. Why would you do that? I mean, actually, that sounds kind of fun. Like, Jay and Miles explain the X-Men random assembled Mad Lib style. I guess it's sort of like learning about continuity from trading cards. <laughs> oh, man. Or just whatever issues you could pick up from the grocery store when you were there with your parents, which, uh, yeah, I know how that part goes. Or whatever issues you found, like, behind, behind buildings with pages missing. Yeah, that, that happened at least once or twice, too. So on the train, we see what's up with this spike, which is that it is full of mutants. Extremely varied mutants, all roughly humanoid, but some with various animalistic traits, all different bright colors, all with strange, unusual proportions and body parts. And Pascal Ferry has so much fun with this. Yeah, they're a lot of, a lot of fun. And you mentioned in the outline, and I noticed too, that they really, really 
remind me of kind of slightly scarier, more monstrous versions of the Warpies from the old Captain Britain. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, which, of course, just makes me think of Alan Davis, and I always like thinking of Alan Davis. He seems excellent, and he draws good comic books. He really, really does. I also have to give Fairy credit for the way he draws Beast slash Dark Beast. Okay, right, we're just saying Beast now. But the dark part is relevant to the moment because as Beast is telling all of these jokes as he's fighting, which of course he always does, him and Spider-Man, his smiles are just a little too big and a little too toothy. He actually reminds me a lot of when Grave Moss took over Nightcrawler, you know, the wizard in No Shirt and Jeans, the, the mind freak of Excalibur. Um... And Kurt still looked like Kurt, but just looked a little more demonic and evil. His eyes were a little too wide. His smiles were a little too big. It's kind of like that. Yeah, definitely. So it becomes quickly clear that this is not a mutant. This is a disease that spreads by touch and causes instant and catastrophic mutation. Dark Beast has some stuff to say about this. It has possibilities. Mutate the entire country, and the X-Men are no longer minorities in a world that hates and fears them. Joke. Bad joke. You can take the Dark Beast out of Age of Apocalypse, but you can't take the Age of Apocalypse out of Dark Beast. But I like this. Like, he's clearly trying to have fun with what he's doing, and just sort of keeps forgetting, Oh, right, that's, that's not how the X-Men do things. Uh, okay. Now, he uses brake fluid to MacGyver together some knockout gas, which he uses to knock out most of the mutates on the train. Um, it implies that he takes a more physical approach with the ones who don't need to breathe. I think it implies he actually just straight up kills them. Oh, I, I thought it was implying that he just he just physically knocked them out. Yeah, I don't know. But uh, certainly he's less concerned for the uh, well-being of the various uh, hapless, colorful innocents around him than his 616 counterpart would be. Now, someone is very disappointed by this development, and that is the person responsible for the mass mutation on the train. Who in the Marvel Universe has a thing for mutants, really wanting to figure out how to make more and more mutants to, you know, experiment on? Well, uh, there was that one time that Magneto made Mutant Alpha, and then Mutant Alpha turned all the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants into babies. But I know who you're talking about. It's Mr. Sinister. The same guy Dark Beast changed his appearance and secretly joined the X-Men to avoid. Yeah, here he is on literally Dark Beast's first mission with the team. I love this so much. There's also a caption that intrigues me here because I think maybe for the first time we have the comic telling us what Mr. Sinister sounds like. His voice sounds like metal gouging granite and swallows all the noise in the world. So I initially, when I read that, I read that very fast and parsed it wrong in my head. So his voice sounds like metal gouging granite and swallows. <laughs> like the bird. Yeah, and I was like, wow, what a weird, fanciful description. I mean, we know he's evil, but is he really going to, like, stab birds? No, no, I, I assumed it was like metal gouging granite. And swallows, not like metal gouging granite and swallows. Oh, well, okay. Is that less weird or more weird? I don't know. I'm, I'm not entirely sure, nor am I certain how seriously we should take that caption. Yeah, hard to say. I mean, honestly, for me, Sinister is always going to sound the way he sounds in the 90s animated series, which I probably would not describe that way. 
I think that voice would sound like metal being smug. Yeah, I I would see him as sounding maybe a bit off or unearthly. But basically very, very cultured and self-satisfied in general. I mean, the point is he's probably not stabbing any birds. And that brings us to X-Men number 52, Collector's Item. Written by Mark Wade, penciled by Andy Kubert, inked by Cam Smith, colored by Marie Javins, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft. You know who's known for his good plans? Gambit. That is not true at all, and I gotta say, the plan that he has here, the plan that works here, is a bad plan that that, that makes no sense and that he should be ashamed of. I love it so much. So, without telling anyone what he's gonna do, like, Dark Beast has already been captured by Sinister, so it's just Gambit and Bishop. Gambit charges literally the entire train with that glowy pink kinetic energy that is his mutant power. So he basically just turns the train into a giant bomb, the train that is now speeding out of control toward Penn Station, filled with a bunch of innocent people who got turned into multicolored monsters. And the idea is that Bishop will then jump out in front of the train and and just sort of grab onto it and absorb all that kinetic energy and then blast it back at the train which somehow will not cause a massive explosion and derailment. That's that's part of the part that really gives me the most pause. Another part is that he's kind of expecting Bishop's powers to work like strong guys here, which they do not. So that's the thing. Gambit charges things with kinetic energy. Shouldn't that actually be potential energy? Yes. Yeah, so if you look at it that way, it kind of makes sense. Kind of. If Bishop could just absorb kinetic energy, then Gambit wouldn't be necessary for this plan at all. Bishop could just jump in front of the train. Yeah, or just, like, flick himself in the nose or something, assuming that kid doesn't take his nose away. What impresses me most here, though, is not this ridiculous mutant power plan, but is the fact that as part of it, Bishop is pushing against the front of the train and sliding backwards. I don't know what his boots are made of, but, uh, something impressive. Like unstable molecules. Oh, okay. I I guess so. I gotta get me some of that. I wear through shoes pretty quickly. We are also going to get a brief cameo here from a character who is going to become one of the big bads of the X-Men. Someone we've never seen before. We don't really see here, but we hear named. Um, This is just a shadowy figure in a trench coat and fedora for now, but he is referred to as Bastion. Yeah, he steals the camera of one of the media photographers that's here, and the reporter with the photographer says, hey, don't worry, we're on the same side, it's cool, he's just a weird guy. The other instance we've seen, this doesn't count as an appearance, but do you remember in that issue where X-Force was being interrogated by Charlotte Jones? At the end, someone shows up and talks about how the world will soon have zero tolerance for mutants? Yeah, yeah, I assumed that was him as well. Or yeah. someone attached to him. Yeah, I I do enjoy that even though Onslaught hasn't even happened, we're still getting seeds for the next big event. Like, I love that shit in X-Men. Comics. Comics. So Sinister just yoinks all of our heroes, even though they're mostly successful, and takes them to his base and wires them into these gigantic yellow implausible machines that would put Moira McTaggart's Nate Gray repair device to shame. Yeah, so his his deal is that he is he is working on a non-temporary version of the virus from the train to turn the world into mutants that he can then experiment on. Like, he just wants to do experiments all the time. He's running out of subjects. 
but he is most excited. Um, he, he, he figures losing those mutates is small fry because he has gotten the biggest fish in the pond. He has Bishop, and Bishop is nowhere in Sinister's vast catalog of mutant DNA of every single mutant, and also Bishop is from the future, and Sinister literally just wants Bishop to confirm that his ships are canon. <laughs> like, that is what he wants here. I mean, you're kind of right. Sinister... I'm completely right. He wants Bishop to give him, like, insights on who has babies with whom. <laughs> oh man yeah bishop just mentions ruby summers and everyone just blinks a couple times like wait scott and emma are gonna hook up no so we also get some incorrect continuity from sinister here because he's he's got his you know show you videos of someone's memories device which which tells him that bishop came back in time to stop the x-trader which is bullshit bishop came back in time to stop fitzroy yeah, I know that they're trying to build up all the Onslaught stuff, and the X-Trader is going to be a big part of the Onslaught story, but let's remember that green-haired, armor-clad bag of dicks who wiped out the Hellions just to show that he was cool. Yeah, fuck that guy. Let us never forget him, and let us never stop hating him. I mean, at least in that incarnation. Okay, that is a, that is a valid point, but at this point in continuity, man, fuck Trevor Fitzroy. And how. So, Sinister having a catalog of literally every mutant on the planet's DNA, that reads a little differently with uh, current continuity as far as House of X and Powers of Ten, huh? I mean, that's part of his role in Krakoa, and that's part of why he's on the ruling council there. Well, and also, you know, part of, like, the history of what was leading up to all that. That's something Jonathan Hickman does so beautifully, just to take little bits of continuity from the past and make them critical to the present. Although, I'm a little sad that we can't see whether Quicksilver and Scarlet Witch are here, because then maybe we'd get an actual definitive answer as to whether they're freaking mutants. You know, it's still gonna be or have been retconned around, even if they were. Grumble, grumble. Well, Dark Beast freaks out, because... Wait a minute, Bishop knows about the Age of Apocalypse. Dark Beast is from the Age of Apocalypse, and there was another Sinister in the Age of Apocalypse. That's no good. But thankfully, Gambit, who Dark Beast notes that Sinister is strangely concerned about, uh, fakes sick and then blows everything up while Sinister is distracted. So it's all fine. Sinister freaks out about his life's work being gone, which is weird because Threnody already destroyed a chunk of it in X-Men 34, and he definitely has backups. Right, I mean, he would have to, based on how House of X and Powers of Ten go. But, you know, honestly, it's sinister. A, he's overdramatic, and B, he's a busy, busy guy. Maybe he forgot. He's not even mad, he's just disappointed. <laughs> As he says, This is not at all what I'd expect of you, Remy LeBeau. And he teleports away. So here's even more foreshadowing for yet another plot line, the one where Gambit's dark secret has a lot to do with previously working with Mr. Sinister. Dark Beast catches this, and also notes that Gambit knows what part of the country this underground lab is in, even though they were unconscious when they got here. This I like. This is a cool way to handle Dark Beast. He's smart like Beast, he's curious like Beast, but he sees information as a weapon, and that is why he collects it. So that brings us to the part of the show where usually we answer listener questions. Today we're going to do something a little bit different, because in addition to being appropriately and, and understandably confused about X-Men, y'all are a font of neat information, so today we're going to turn it over to you. 
Several of you wrote in to let us know that the X-Men vs. Brood miniseries did not, in fact, have enhanced covers, making it a rarity among its contemporaries and probably an ironically rare collectible. That's right, the only two-issue miniseries without embossed foil magical cardstock covers. I really have to wonder how that impacted sales. Like, did it sell more than a random X-Men miniseries would have because it was cheaper or less because it wasn't super, super shiny? I know that data's out there somewhere. I just I just find it really boring. It's like trying to read the Silmarillion. I know it's good information, but it just goes right through my brain. Now, listener Mary wrote in to tell us a bit of kind of fantastic rogue trivia. Um, Mary discovered that the idiom, like a long-tailed cat in a room full of rocking chairs shows up a full three years before Rogue's first appearance. Specifically, she found it in Stephen King's novel, The Stand. Like a long-tailed cat in a room full of rocking chairs. That is, of course, uh, made famous by Night of the Sentinels, the two-parter that started the X-Men animated series, and that I got on VHS as a prize from Pizza Hut. Or maybe I bought it there, I don't remember. But I watched that thing so many times, and that line is on permanent repeat in the back of my head. Have we seen whether Rogue ever says that in the comic? I, I've i never read her saying that in the comic, and I'm pretty confident that that's the case because I would absolutely remember that. Same. And it's, it's, it's funny how, how we end up sort of retconning that back to being the absolute distinctive, you know, Rogue quote and sort of forget that it's from the cartoon. But yeah, so Mary, that was a great, great bit of trivia. And I'm, I'm wondering whether King coined it or whether there are examples of it being used even earlier. So, so listeners, if you want to engage in some lexicographic detective work, here's a good starting point. Also, if you yourself are a long-tailed cat who has been in a room full of rocking chairs, what's that like? Is it as scary as I think it is? It seems super scary. Now, our listeners are pretty amazing. In addition to sending us bits of cool information, uh, they support what we do here. We are an entirely listener-supported podcast, and some of those tiers of support come with acknowledgement on the show from a range of fictional characters and concepts. The mic today goes, of course, to Mr. Sinister. There are so many accomplishments in my long and glamorous life about which to be smug. And at the top of that impressive number is my perfect collection of mutant genetic data. Every single mutant, from Adam X to Zorn, exists in finely detailed code, strand after strand bundled into a cord of pure information. A lesser geneticist would content himself merely with A's, C's, T's, G's, and X's. But Sinister demands more. For do not our experiences define us as well as our genes? Must not our potentials be nurtured? And thus do I know of Bob Discord's pending Essex Factor. Okay, fine. X Factor. Activation. But I also know of that time that Bob ended a phone call with an insurance agent and accidentally said, I love you instead of thank you, and then ate a whole thing of jelly beans as distraction from obsessing over what the agent might think. And thus shall Bob's acidic blood become blue rather than green. Jeffrey Sim, let me read your data strand. Ah, a mutant power that manifested early but subtly, one that even you have not yet noticed. But Sinister notices all, including that time you were getting up from the table after a meal at a fancy restaurant, 
and the chair leg made sort of a fart sound against the ground, so you slid the chair around more to make it clear that the noise was coming from it, and that attracted far more attention than the initial noise ever could have. And you still don't know how your mutant powers were involved. Sinister knows all. Sinister sees all. And Sinister gets it. Social interaction is challenging. Have you tried making a giant monstrosity out of corpses as a sort of science PowerPoint presentation? That usually works. And with that... Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in New Fairfield, Connecticut in exile from Forest Hills, New York, and Portland, Oregon, and produced by Matt Hunter, who also arranged our theme music. You can find more of Matt's work at moon-talk.bandcamp.com. New episodes of our show come out most Sundays on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for original illustrations by David Wynn as well as visual companions to every episode. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Next week, Mplate returns in the pages of Generation X. As secrets come closer to the surface.